Welcome, brothers and sisters. Welcome, brothers and sisters, to the Lo-Fi Library. It's Meaning Stream 360, and today we are—we are, you know—we're going to go into the Lo-Fi Library. We're going to pull us out a book, a big, fat, famous book. We're going to read that book. When I say read, I mean we're going to let someone else read it, and we're going to accompany it with beautiful music that's going to help to uh, embed it within us. You know. That's what we're doing, baby. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Read what you love until you love to read. The foundation of learning is reading. I don't know a smart person who doesn't read and read all the time. The problem is, what do I read? How do I read? Because for most people, it's a struggle, it's a chore. So the most important thing is just to learn how to educate yourself. And the way to educate yourself is to develop a love for reading. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. Everybody I know who reads a lot loves to read. And they love to read because they read books they loved. It's a little bit of a catch-22, but you basically want to start off just reading wherever you are and then keep building up from there until reading becomes a habit. And then eventually you will just get bored of the simple stuff. You may start off reading fiction, then you might graduate to science fiction, then you may graduate to non-fiction, then you may graduate to science or philosophy or mathematics or whatever it is. But take your natural path and just read the things that interest you until you kind of understand them and then you'll naturally move to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Read what you love until you love to read. Yeah! Until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. It's that simple. At some point, there's too much out there to read. And even reading is full of junk. There are actually things you can read, especially early on, that will program your brain a certain way. And then later things that you read decide whether those things are true or false based on the earlier things. So it is important that you read foundational things. And the ultimate is when you walk into a library and you look at it up and down and you don't fear any book. You know that you can take any book off the shelf, you can read it, you can understand it, you can absorb what is true, you can reject what is false, and you have a basis for working that out that is logical and not purely just based on opinions. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. It's that simple. The beauty of the internet is the entire 
entire library of Alexandria times 10 is at your fingertips. Times 10! All times. Amazing. It's not the means of education or the means of learning are scarce. The means of learning are abundant. It's the desire to learn that's scarce. So you really have to cultivate that desire. And it's not even cultivating, you have to not lose it. Children have a natural curiosity. If you go to a young child who's first learning language, they're pretty much always asking, what's this, what's that, why is this, who's that? They're always asking questions. But one of the problems is that schools and our educational system and even our way of raising children replaces curiosity with compliance. And once you replace the curiosity with the compliance, you get an obedient factory worker, but you no longer get a creative thinker. And you need creativity. You need that ability to feed your own brain to learn whatever you want. Read what you love until you love to read. Read what you love until you love to read. I found the auto-tuner this morning. Read one. I think it's in the wrong tune. Akira. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely in the wrong tune. Oh, what? Hey, not G, you fuck. Read one. Stream. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, baby. It's the Lo-Fi Library. I invented that today. Do you like it? Do you like that as a name? Lo-Fi Library. Sounds good, right? Sounds cool. I mean, obviously, it means that, like, whatever. 
Like, it's not obviously not all lo-fi type music I play, is it? When I'm live scoring things, but it's kind of in that wheel part. So I think that's a good name for now. It's a good name for today. Whoa! 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 Hey, welcome Landy Lodge. Just raided us. Just got raided by Landy Lodge. Imagine that. Imagine that. What a thing. Hey! Good to see you. Welcome to the Lo-Fi Library. The Lo-Fi Library is one of the many, many rooms inside the mansion that is the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. I mean, the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone is obviously, it's a zone! It's a zone, and it's got a mansion in it, amongst other things. There are many rooms in that mansion. Many rooms in the mansion! One of those rooms is the Lo-Fi Library. Uh, thank you, Miranda Alec, for that $1.99 super chat that says, Mood! Written with smiley faces as the ooh. How about that? Uh, Mikey Mike says, let's go 360 degrees on 360 stream. What would that mean? How would one do that? I didn't even realize it was 360. And that that's like a thing. Oh shit, 360's a thing. I could have done a thing. What kind of thing could you do, 360? What could you do? We should have discussed this before. What up, FaZe says, eating chicken wings and listening to Lo-Fi Meaning Wave. Good day, woo! Good day, woo! It's like great day whoop, but just like a little more humble. It's when you don't want to be too ostentatious. You say good day whoop, good day whoop. What up, Faze? You bad mama jammer. Faze is like a crypto art god now. This time last week, Faze wasn't a crypto art god. And he did a bit of research. Now he is. Now he is. And I'm very proud of that man. Bye, Joe. Check out Instagram, uh, check out FaZe's Insta to make sure that you don't uh, miss his crypto auctions. And you probably will, because he only does like limited edition of one. He says limited to one, and then they're gone. You know, because he's a master of, uh, of many of the principles of persuasion. And hey, I think we might be looking into some of that stuff tonight, or like, you know, some bases. Tonight, here in the Lo-Fi uh, Library, we are going to be reading or what life scoring, should we say? A classic. A classic called uh, Think and Grow Rich. Akira. And you might have heard of that because uh, various people mention it, don't they? We've heard Scott Adams mention it, for example. Yo. Uh, Faye says, thank you. Some of the first buyers are already making double or triple what they spent on. What people are selling your stuff. People are flipping your artworks. People are flipping those phased uh, originals. What the flip? My goodness. How could you do that? How could you flip a phase? That is shocking. They're morons as well, you know, because they'll be like way more valuable next week. This time next week, way more valuable. Stefan, huh? There's Napoleon Hill. Yes! Exactly. Exactly. We're going to get into that. Faye says, that's right, and the artist gets 10% royalties for all future trade sales. Hurrah! Hurrah. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing that is. Smash that like. Smash that like if you think it's a wonderful thing. Ill Ink just summoned uh, the Rick. How's your birthday going, Ill Ink? Ill Ink was here this morning, it was Ill Ink's birthday. Whenever it's someone's birthday, I say, hey, you can have a request. 
Ill Ink asked for some uh, space. We were playing disco, so Ill Ink said some spacey disco because she was applying to go to the moon. And we ended up playing loads of space disco, like an hour and a half or something of space disco, and it was great. Space disco is one of my favorite subgenres, not even of disco, just in general. You know, just general. Crikey Dallas in the house is up in flipping burgers and pancakes, gang gang. Gang gang. Gang gang. Mikey Mike says, Great day, woo. Listen to three of your streams with that. Restart that. Mikey Mike says, Great day, woo. Listen to three of your streams while riding my bike all day. Epic day, woo. 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 Twitchero Alex says, Oh yeah, did you want me to put Space Disco on the wheel? I didn't actually do it yet, lol. We need to rejig that whole wheel. I need to reapproach re that wheel from its new, its function previously was that of a, an apparatus in a game show. And now it's used uh, as an apparatus in deciding the vibes for the following morning. So it needs to be reapproached with that in mind. Uh, so yeah, I'll add that to my list of things to do. List of things to do. You should see my list of things to do. Bloody hell! Bloody hell, it could give you a panic attack if you weren't, you know, very, very, very centered. I actually, honestly, I thought I was going to have one the other day. You know me, I'm very chill normally. Da, 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 da. The, the, was it yesterday, the day before, yesterday morning? Oh, suddenly all these things that need doing started, like, smacking me around the head, you know? You ever get that? They swarm you like a cloud of locusts, and they come in at you from all angles, and I'd sit down and go, oh, bloody hell, like that, you know, and do a bit of, um, do a bit of old Wimity Hoff and have a lie down, all that. Yeah! Nate Petrowski is in the house and uh, just sent us $5, which is very nice. And it says it's from Ruby, Paul, Emily, and Grace. Ruby, Paul, Emily, and Grace in the place. God bless you. Nate also says positive vibes from my family to you and yours. Isn't that nice? Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Grace. Hurrah! Great day, Wu. Let's do the international high five, and then we'll get right into it, baby. Uh, I would uh, encourage you to smash the like on YouTube if you if, if uh, you have that power within you. We have to be very very pa uh, hard at uh, like smashing right now. Uh, we have to go very hard on the like smashing because um... <laughs> shadow panic intensifies. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but whatever they're up to is intensified again. I'm getting messages of people every day going, Oh my goodness, I didn't know you put an album out. I didn't know you put this out. I'm subscribed to you. I've smashed the bell. Nobody told me. Blah, blah, blah. All that. So uh, I, I would suggest you uh, join the Discord or join the Telegram because I think those notifications go out. People seem to get those. And also, if you're in the Discord, uh, they have like a movie club in there and stuff, you know? It's very cool. It's very cool movie club. Uh, McAllen says, I just saw your Jordan Peterson interview from 2019. I hope you'll do another one soon. Respect from Toronto. Well, you're in luck. You're in luck, uh, McAllen. Another one is in the can and coming very, very soon. Morgan Mindfulness says, Discord is where it's at, yo. Uh, indeed, indeed. Shouts out to the Discord. Shouts out to everyone in the Discord. And uh, shouts out to Discord as a concept. By the way, uh, my son, you know, my same son came, he's eight, you know, and he come, he's got a Discord. He keeps starting new Discord servers all the time. And he keeps inviting me to them. And they've all got these different themes and stuff. And I was like, oh my goodness. Anyway, uh, he comes to me this morning. He's like, Dada, Dada, uh, can you help me install a bot on my server? I want to install the Dank Memes bot. In my Discord server, I said, what do you need a dank memes bot for? And uh, thinking to myself, why is my eight-year-old talking about dank memes? Uh, God bless. And uh, he says to me, well, you know, when my friends are in there and they have arguments, if uh, the dank meme bot could put a, me a dank meme there and everybody would stop arguing and they'd laugh. 
because everybody loves dank memes, Dada. And I thought, well, shit, you really can't argue with that, can you? I mean, that is just science right there. That's entirely science. Uh, so I said, okay, and we installed the dank meme bot. And, uh, and it was very cool. And you can say, plus meme, right? You can write plus meme and it'll give you a meme. However, the memes were inappropriate. They were too dank. And when I say too dank, I mean actually too normy. They were all about Prince Harry, who's uh, this uh, um, ginger bastard. And I mean that in the literal sense, uh, from the United Kingdom, you know? And, uh, <laughs> they were all to do with him. It's like, who cares about him? I don't even know what's going on with that. People are suddenly going on about this nonsense to do with that ginger bastard um, and his missus, like, um, trying to ignite a race war or something. I don't know what's going on. I, this is, I say, this is why you don't watch TV and this is why you don't pay attention to Twitters and things. And it, I only know, hear about this stuff in the periphery when things like that happen. A bunch of dank memes uh, that aren't even dank. I know, look, yo, don't you talk to me about dank memes. I was in the original dank memes Facebook group uh, when, you know, way back in the day. When those things were spicy. Boy, oh boy, they were spicy, baby. There was a period in time um, when memes what, they were so spicy you could cook on them from a distance. You know what I mean? You, you could like you could hold an egg over here, and your and your laptop would be over there. You know what I mean? If, if the screen faced in the direction of the egg, the egg would cook. Like that, baby. It was good. That was a good time. But you know they got shut down because uh, humorless fuckwits uh, run Facebook. Oh, why am I swearing? I do apologize. I do apologize. I do apologize. I will not swear again. And uh, if any children were in the vicinity and heard the swearing, uh, your your parent uh, owes you. <laughs> you, should, you should find them. You should find them for exposing you to uh, such awfulness. Now, now speaking of exposure, uh, we are about to expose you to uh, some glory. You know, so expose you to some glory. That's what we're going to do. Uh, but before we expose you to glory, uh, we're going to do the international high five, as I said. Uh, the international high five, as I said. And I will ask you this for the international high five. If money were no object, what would you do tomorrow? Neo-stoicism, how are you doing, baby? And let me know where you are, of course. Let me know where you are. And uh, if money was no object, what would you do tomorrow? State Dugan says, meaning wave is my media. Stay Dugan. That's because you're smart. Yo. Miranda Alex says, LMFAO. She's quite right, too. Miss Superconductor says, why do they try to make us care about this? Because they think we're morons. They think we're simple. They think they can distract us with, 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 the, with that kind of nonsense. Go, go bugger off. At this point, I, I honestly demand rockets at the very minimum. I demand uh, firmament-piercing rockets and, uh, you know, ginger bastard just doesn't do it for me. Oh, dear. I need to come up. What's, what's the word? Why, bastard's a technical term. It's a technical term means you know born out of wedlock and that ginger fellow you know he was but he was born away from the lock of wed you know what i mean that jughead fellow who's supposed to be king by this point but is not the king because his mum just won't die his mum just refuses to die and that jughead fellow you know he's a pensioner at this point and he's still not king and that ginger is did not come out of his nuts that ginger chap did not so i don't know why that ginger chap's on tv at all i don't know anyone cares Yo, they messed up. What up, Sedonica? Says, crikey, how dare you? Indeed. Fool Keller says, uh, Maryland, uh, I'd buy every piece of Ultraman. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and Kamen Rider merch I could get my hands on. I like these, the, I like the, uh, <laughs> I like the Fool Killer's priorities are just always on point. Uh, Jeremy Brimmer says, I would pay the world to chill for the next 10,000 years. <laughs> Yeah, 
That's such a good one. Um, oh, there you go. Crikey says, I wouldn't pay back Sidonicus. And that's why Sidonicus said, Crikey, how dare you? Morgan Mindfulness and Moon Mexico. I would continue teaching mindfulness as well as other flow techniques to my fellow human beings adding value. Boom! No difference whatsoever. This superconductor, if money was not an option, I'd buy a house here in OC with a big yard for my doggies to run around in and grow a garden. Smart. Smart. Growgardens.com. Douglas Holloway drone space armada to set up habitats to colonize Mars and Venus. There you go. Exactly that. Elling Denver, I'd buy the highest end 3D VR workstation that ever could exist and get to work. Or should I say, get to work. Quite right too. Grant Kelly, travel the world and indulge music even more. Humble. Zachary Marker, am I money, no object? Buy land and start a life of living off the land. The dream. This superconductor, get chickens. D-Man says, did someone say get rich by thinking? They're about to. I do believe that's the, the first chapter. D-Man says, I'm in. Blatu, St. Charles, Missouri. I'd buy a Porsche Carrera GC and drive road called the Tale of the Dragon. Used to drive a Porsche, 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 I uh, Something about trapping in Afghanistan. Shouts out to Riff Ruff. Matthew Felsey, Colorado, buy a plane. Members time, Virginia Beach, Virginia with Zion. Heart emoji. This is going well, isn't it? Members time and, and, and Zion, this has been going on for a while. Is this the one? Are we gonna have a meaning wedding? Are there gonna be more meaning babies? Uh, if money was no issue, I'd be buying a big house with everything I need to support my future family. Oh, there you go. Probably near Akira the Don. Oh, you're gonna build a house in my garden. I gotta tell you, the grass is balked. After that ice, half the grass is dead, and then there's this other kind of new grass that's appeared and is thriving. It's kind of weirding me out. Stay, Dugan, Idaho, cruise ship named Mazlantis, full of all of you. Ride the oceans to a new world. Add rockets to explore space. There you go. Uh, Aban MX says, nice shirt. That's a nice thing to say, isn't it? It's nice when people compliment you on your shirt. Is this the first time I've not been wearing Meaning Wave merch? I wanted to wear a shirt for some reason. I just did. I had this desire to wear a shirt. And I realized we haven't got any Meaning Wave doesn't make any shirts. So I'm going to have to sort that out. Crikey Dahl. I would buy a brain for anyone that votes for charlatans. Well, there's everyone who's ever voted. Uh, Davey Hogan, MA, I'd disappear like Buddha. D-Man says heart. Uh, Lazarus says, uh, what buy a Carrera when you could buy a 599, a 959? There we go, we're gonna have a car argument now. Cindy Bailey says, I'd buy acres upon acres in the countryside and build my family a dream home. I'd have packs and packs of wild dogs running free throughout all of the land. That's nice, isn't it? Packs of wild dogs. Twitcher Alex, Canada, I'd move to America, lol. Canada, move to America, lol. <laughs> Stefan, huh? Washington, D.C., I'd buy a sick Airstream and cruise around the U.S. and Canada full-time. Uh, a friend of mine bought an Airstream. They're a lot of work. You put a lot of bloody work, those Airstreams, but, you know, they, they are cool. They're definitely cool. They're very thin, though. It's like uh, you've been on a longboat. You, know? you can't swing cats in them. If you're into swinging cats, you couldn't swing a cat. No cat swinging going on. 
in an airstream. Uh, Matthew Felsey says, shouts out to Deals Gap, Tail of the Dragon, 318 curves, 11 miles. D-Man says, Naval inspired apparel. I don't understand the statement. Shirts. Shirts. Mikey Mike says, much love from Phoenix AZ. Hill Inc. says, meaning babies, lol. Every first date I have from here on out, we'll start with the question, have you heard of Meaning Wave? There you go. That's a good question. And if they say no, uh, what do you do? Do you yeet them or do you edumacate them? Yeet or edumacate? Uh-huh. Boom! Member Stime says, yes, things are going very well. She definitely seems to be the one. And a meaning wedding is a possibility and would be an amazing event full of misunderstandings. Hey, how about that? Amazing. What a, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing to have members time growing up with us here, you know? Growing into the man that he will become, you know, the, the mighty, mighty man who, who will uh, possibly be a warlord uh, in uh, one of the dystopic future timelines. In one of the timelines where it's dystopic, he's, he's a warlord, you know, with Zion and the truffle-sniffing dog. Uh, Miranda Alec, Michigan, if money is no issue, I'd build condominiums, condominiums for all of the homeless and set up rehab integration systems to help them out. No one deserves to sleep outside because of mental health problems. Ain't that nice? Miranda Alec. You blessed, blessed being you. Uh, says huge veteran homeless percentage as well. Very much so. Very much so. And, and you know, unsurprising given what they go through and witness and then what they return to and what happens when they return. Uh, we've got a hi, I'm new here to re Redeemed uh, from nine minutes ago. So apologies for that. Sometimes you have to, sometimes, you know, you have to uh, waste a little moment. Uh, but the hi, I'm new here, high five for Everlek. Everlek would like a high five because Everlek is new here. So high five Everlek, everybody. Three, two, one. High five Everlek. And the international high five will follow. And that's very similar, but we, this one, one we'll concentrate and we'll hold it. And you'll get the power, you know, we'll get the power. Everlek, uh, if you'd like some power, ready yourself. You're about to get some, you know. Goes a little something like this. Three. Two, one. Yes. How'd that feel? Great track. Shout out to me. Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect.
Think and Grow Rich. Hey, Jocko, we just saw Jocko. Yeah, we do Think and Grow Rich tonight, and um, you know, there's reasons for that. There's reasons for that, and I'll tell you one reason. I'll tell you right now. Uh, I'll tell you right now, and I'll tell you right now, and the reasons are I'll tell you right now. Uh, we got a new album coming up. We got a new album coming up in a short amount of time. Hogwarts says, I recognize this time from the Meatloaf covers. Diamond is so good. Great mix, Akira. Yeah, that there, uh, dun, dun, that's a sample from a Jim Simon song from Jim Steinman's solo album, Bad for Good. And I sampled it on my uh, debut uh, Akira the Don rap album, you know? And uh, yeah, Jim Steinman approved that personally. How about that? Love I love Jim Steinman and uh, yeah, and Meatloaf also. But Jim Steinman the most, because Jim Steinman uh, is, you know, amazing. So is Meatloaf. It's not a competition. Uh, anyway, I was telling you something. I was telling you about what's coming up. What's coming up is a brand new album. What's coming up is a brand new album, a brand new album, a brand new album from the Mini Wave Superstar. It's a long-awaited album. It's an album people ask me for all the time, pretty much every day. Say, give it the joke. When is this album going to happen? I need it. Need it. This first one, the first one was a part one, you know. It was called Volume 1. Volume 1 it was called, and a Volume 1 would suggest a Volume 2, surely. Well, good news, everybody. Great news, everybody! Great news! Let's get Richard Clark. Become the best in the world at what you do Keep redefining what you do Until this is true Until this is true Become the best in the world at what you do Keep redefining what you do Until this is true Until this is true Ow! If you really want to get paid in this world You want to be number one at whatever it is that you're doing Do you know who Akira the Dawn is? Of course, he's amazing what? It can be niche, that's the point. It can literally be you getting paid for just being you. Hey! You know, at this point, some of the most successful people in the world are that way. Oprah gets paid for being Oprah. Joe Rogan gets paid for being Joe Rogan. They're being authentic to themselves. You want to be number one, but you want to keep changing what you do until you're number one. You can't just pick something arbitrary. You can't say, I'm going to be the fastest runner in the world, and now you got to beat Usain Bolt. That's too hard of a problem. But what you can do is you can keep changing what your objective is until it arrives to your specific knowledge, your skill sets, your position, your capabilities, your location, your interest, knowledge, your skill sets, your position, your capabilities, your location, your interest, and then converges to making you and then converges to making you number one. Number one. Yeah. Become the best in the world of what you do. Keep redefining what you do. Answer this is true. Answer this is true. Become the best in the world of what you do. Keep redefining what you do. Answer this is true. What? Searching for what to do, you actually have two different foci that you have to keep in mind at all points. One of those is, I want to be the best at what I do, 
And the second is what I do is flexible so that I am the best at it. I am the best at it. Until you arrive at a comfortable place where you're like, yes, this is something I can be amazing at while still being authentic to who I am. And this is not going to be an overnight discovery. It's going to be a long journey, but at least you know how to think about it. The most important thing for a company is to find product market fit. The important thing for an entrepreneur is to find founder product market fit, where you are naturally inclined to build the right product, which has a market. That's a three-focus problem, which is you got to make all three of those work at once. If you want to be successful in life, if you just have to get comfortable managing multivariate problems, multiple objective functions at once, then this is one of those cases where you have to map at least two or three at once. Yeah. Become the best in the world of what you do. Keep redefining what you do. Until this is true. Until this is true. Become the best in the world of what you do. Keep redefining what you do. Until this is true, until this is true Become the best in the world of what you do Keep the divine what you do Until this is true, until this is true Become the best in the world of what you do Keep redefining what you do Until this is true, until this is true Z makes some noise. Yeah. Become the best in the world. Become the best in the world. Brand new from Akira the Don in Naval. Hold tight for more details on that over the next few days. Yo! Become the best. Best in the world. Best in the world. Best in the world. Best in the world. That's the vibes, baby. It's them best in the world vibes. It's, uh, it's that season, baby. It's that season. Get rich season. Get rich cook. Let's get it. The Secret of Success In every chapter of this book, mention is made of the money-making secret that has made fortunes for the exceedingly wealthy men whom I have carefully analyzed over a long period of years. The secret was first brought to my attention by Andrew Carnegie. The canny, lovable old Scotsman carelessly tossed it into my mind when I was but a boy. Then he sat back in his chair with a merry twinkle in his eyes and watched carefully to see if I had brains enough to understand the full significance of what he'd said to me. When he saw that I had grasped the idea, he asked if I would be willing to spend 20 years or more preparing myself to take it to the world, to men and women who, without the secret, might go through life as failures. I said I would, and with Mr. Carnegie's cooperation, I have kept my promise. This book, Think and Grow Rich, contains the Carnegie Secrets, 
a secret that has been tested by thousands, now millions of people in almost every walk of life. It was Mr. Carnegie's idea that the magic formula, which gave him a stupendous fortune, ought to be placed within reach of people who do not have the time to investigate how others had made their money. It was his hope that I might test and demonstrate the soundness of the formula through the experience of men and women in every calling. He believed the formula should be taught in all public schools and colleges. He said that if it were properly taught, it would revolutionize the entire educational system and the time spent in school could be reduced to less than half. In Chapter 4, On Faith, you will read the astounding story of the organization of the giant United States Steel Corporation. It was conceived and carried out by one of the young men through whom Mr. Carnegie proved that his formula will work for all who are ready for it. This single application of the secret by Charles M. Schwab made him a huge fortune in both money and opportunity. Roughly speaking, this particular application of the formula was worth $600 million. These facts give you a fair idea of what reading this book may bring to you, provided you know what it is that you want. The secret was passed on to thousands of men and women who have used it for their personal benefit. Some have made fortunes with it. Others have used it successfully in creating harmony in their homes. A clergyman used it so effectively that it brought him an income of upwards of $75,000 a year, approximately $1.5 million in contemporary terms. Arthur Nash, a Cincinnati tailor, used his near-bankrupt business as a guinea pig on which to test the formula. The business came to life and made a fortune for its owners. The experiment was so unique that newspapers and magazines gave it millions of dollars worth of publicity. The secret was passed on to Stuart Austin Weir of Dallas, Texas. He was ready for it. So ready that he gave up his profession and studied law. Did he succeed? You'll read the answer in Chapter 6, Specialized Knowledge. While I was the advertising manager of the LaSalle Extension University, I had the privilege of seeing J.G. Chaplin, president of the university, use the formula so effectively that he made LaSalle one of the great extension schools of this country. The secret is mentioned no fewer than a hundred times throughout this book. It has not been directly named, for it seems to work more successfully when it is merely left in sight, where those who are ready and searching for it may pick it up. That is why Andrew Carnegie passed it to me without giving me its specific name. If you are ready to put it to use, you will recognize this secret at least once in every chapter. But you will not find an explanation of how you will know if you are ready. That would deprive you of much of the benefit you will receive when you make the discovery in your own way. If you have ever been discouraged, if you have had difficulties that took the very soul out of you, if you have tried and failed, if you were ever handicapped by illness or physical affliction, the story of my own son's discovery and use of the Carnegie formula may prove to be the oasis in the desert of lost hope for which you have been searching. This secret was extensively used by President Woodrow Wilson during the World War and by President Roosevelt during the Second World War. It was passed on to every soldier in the training received before going to the front. President Wilson told me it was a powerful factor in raising the funds needed for the war. A peculiar thing about this secret is that those who acquire and use it find themselves literally swept on to success. 
However, as is often pointed out in this book, there is no such thing as something for nothing. The secret cannot be had without paying a price, although the price is far less than its value. Another peculiarity is that the secret cannot be given away, and it cannot be purchased for money. Unless you are intentionally searching for the secret, you cannot have it at any price. That is because the secret comes in two parts, and in order for you to get it, one of those parts must already be in your possession. The secret will work for anyone who is ready for it. Education has nothing to do with it. Long before I was born, the secret had found its way into the possession of Thomas A. Edison, and he used it so intelligently that he became the world's leading inventor, although he had only three months of schooling. The secret was passed on to Edwin C. Barnes, a business associate of Mr. Edison's. He used it so effectively that he accumulated a great fortune and retired from active business while still a young man. You will find his story at the beginning of the next chapter. It should convince you that riches are not beyond your reach, and that no matter where you are in life, you can still be what you wish to be. Money, fame, recognition, and happiness can be had by you if you are ready and determined to have these blessings. How do I know these things? You should have the answer before you finish this book. You may find it in the very first chapter or on the last page. Poverty and riches are the offspring of thought. Chapter 2 Thoughts are Things The man who thought his way into partnership with Thomas A. Edison. Truly, thoughts are things, and powerful things, when they are mixed with definiteness of purpose, persistence, and a burning desire for their translation into riches or other material objects. Some years ago, Edwin C. Barnes discovered how true it is that you really can think and grow rich. His discovery did not come about at one sitting. It came little by little, beginning with a burning desire to become a business associate of the great Thomas Edison. One of the chief characteristics of Barnes' desire was that it was definite. He wanted to work with Edison, not for him. Pay close attention to the story of how he turned his desire into reality, and you'll have a better understanding of the principles that lead to riches. When this desire, or this thought, first flashed into his mind, he was in no position to act upon it. Two problems stood in his way. He did not know Mr. Edison, and he did not have enough money to buy a train ticket to West Orange, New Jersey, where the famed Edison Laboratory was located. 
These problems would have discouraged the majority of people from making any attempt to carry out the desire. But his was no ordinary desire. The Inventor and the Tramp Edwin C. Barnes presented himself at Mr. Edison's laboratory and announced that he had come to go into business with the inventor. Years later, in speaking about that first meeting, Mr. Edison said about Barnes, He stood there before me looking like an ordinary tramp, but there was something in the expression of his face which conveyed the impression that he was determined to get what he had come after. I had learned from years of experience with men that when a man really desires a thing so deeply that he is willing to stake his entire future on a single turn of the wheel in order to get it, he is sure to win. I gave him the opportunity he asked for because I saw he had made up his mind to stand by until he succeeded. Subsequent events proved that no mistake was made. It could not have been the young man's appearance that got him his start in the Edison office that was definitely against him. It was what he thought that counted. Barnes did not get his partnership with Edison on his first interview. What he did get was a chance to work in the Edison offices at a very nominal wage. Months went by. Nothing happened to bring nearer the goal that Barnes had set as his definite major purpose. But something important was happening in Barnes' mind. He was constantly intensifying his desire to become the business associate of Edison. Psychologists have correctly said, when one is truly ready for a thing, it puts in its appearance. Barnes was ready for a business association with Edison, and he was determined to remain ready until he got what he was seeking. He did not say to himself, ah, oh, well, what's the use? I guess I'll change my mind and try for a salesman's job. But he did say, I came here to go into business with Edison and I'll accomplish my goal if it takes the remainder of my life. He meant it. What a different story people would tell if only they would adopt a definite purpose and stand by that purpose until it had time to become an all-consuming obsession. Maybe young Barnes did not know it at the time, but his bulldog determination and his persistence in focusing on a single desire was destined to mow down all opposition and bring him the opportunity he was seeking. When the opportunity came, it appeared in a different form and from a different direction than Barnes had expected. That is one of the tricks of opportunity. It has a sly habit of slipping in by the back door, and often it comes disguised in the form of misfortune or temporary defeat. Perhaps this is why so many people fail to recognize opportunity. Mr. Edison had just perfected a new device, known at that time as the Edison Dictating Machine. His salesmen were not enthusiastic about the machine. They did not believe it could be sold without great effort. Barnes saw his opportunity. It had crawled in quietly, hidden in a queer-looking machine that interested no one but Barnes and the inventor. Barnes knew he could sell the Edison Dictating Machine, and he told Edison so. Edison decided to give him his chance. And Barnes did sell the machine. In fact, he sold it so successfully that Edison gave him a contract to distribute and market it all over the nation. Out of that business association, Barnes made himself rich in money, but he did something infinitely greater. He proved that you really can think and grow rich. 
How much actual cash that original desire of Barnes was worth to him, I have no way of knowing. Perhaps it brought him two or three million dollars. Editor's comment. Three million dollars in the early years of the 20th century would be comparable to more than 50 million dollars in terms of buying power at the beginning of the 21st century. This is the end of the editor's comment. But the amount becomes insignificant compared with the greater asset he acquired. The definite knowledge that an intangible impulse of thought can be transmuted into material rewards by the application of known principles. Barnes literally thought himself into a partnership with the great Edison. He thought himself into a fortune. He had nothing to start with except knowing what he wanted and the determination to stand by that desire until he realized it. Three feet from gold. One of the most common causes of failure is the habit of quitting when you're overtaken by temporary defeat. Every person is guilty of this mistake at one time or another. During the gold rush days, an uncle of my friend R.U. Darby was caught by gold fever, and he went west to Colorado to dig and grow rich. He had never heard that more gold has been mined from the thoughts of men than has ever been taken from the earth. He staked a claim and went to work with pick and shovel. After weeks of labor, he was rewarded by the discovery of the shining ore. He needed machinery to bring the ore to the surface. Quietly, he covered up the mine and returned to his home in Williamsburg, Maryland. He told his relatives and a few neighbors about the strike. They got together the money for the machinery and had it shipped. R.U. Darby decided to join his uncle and they went back to work the mine. The first car of ore was mined and shipped to a smelter. The returns proved they had one of the richest mines in Colorado. A few more cars of that ore would clear their debts. Then would come the big killing in profits. Down went the drills. Up went the hopes of Darby and Uncle. Then something happened. The vein of gold ore disappeared. They had come to the end of the rainbow and the pot of gold was no longer there. They drilled on, desperately trying to pick up the vein again, all to no avail. Finally, they decided to quit. They sold the machinery to a junk man for a few hundred dollars and took the train back home. The junk man called in a mining engineer to look at the mine and do a little calculating. The engineer advised that the project had failed because the owners were not familiar with fault lines. His calculation showed that the vein would be found just three feet from where the Darbys had stopped drilling. And that is exactly where it was found. The junk man took millions of dollars in ore from the mine because he knew enough to seek expert counsel before giving up. Long afterward, Mr. Darby recouped his loss many times over when he made the discovery that desire can be transmuted into gold. The discovery came after he went into the business of selling life insurance. Never forgetting that he lost a huge fortune because he stopped three feet from gold Darby profited by the experience in his newly chosen field. He simply said to himself, I stopped three feet from gold, but I will never stop because men say no when I ask them to buy insurance. Darby became one of a small group of men who sell over a million dollars in life insurance annually. He owed his stickability to the lesson he learned from his quitability in the gold mining business.
Before success comes in anyone's life, that person is sure to meet with much temporary defeat and perhaps some failure. When defeat overtakes a person, the easiest and most logical thing to do is to quit. That is exactly what the majority of people do. More than 500 of the most successful people this country has ever known told me their greatest success came just one step beyond the point at which defeat had overtaken them. Failure is a trickster with a keen sense of irony and cunning. It takes great delight in tripping you just when success is almost within reach. Editor's Comments Napoleon Hill's Creed, Every Failure Brings With It the Seed of an Equivalent Success, was the inspiration for entrepreneur and motivational speaker Wayne Allen Root to write his book, The Joy of Failure. Published in the late 1990s, it not only tells Wayne's personal story of using his failures as stepping stones to success, he also recounts stories from other successful people which prove that the rich and famous got to be that way only because of what they learned from their failures. People such as Jack Welch, the hugely successful CEO of General Electric, who early in his career failed dramatically when a plastics plant for which he was responsible blew up. Billionaire Charles Schwab was a failure at school and university, flunking basic English twice due to a learning disability, and then failed on Wall Street more than once before he thought of the idea that grew to make him very rich indeed. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Clinton, Stephen Jobs, Donald Trump, and a host of other equally well-known achievers all had to fail in order to learn the lessons that ultimately made them successes. Every one of them was a failure, but none of them was defeated. Charles F. Kettering, who patented more than 200 inventions, including the automobile ignition, the spark plug, Freon for air conditioners, and the automatic transmission, said, From the time a person is six years old until he graduates from college, he has to take three or four examinations a year. If he flunks once, he is out. But an inventor is almost always failing. He tries and fails maybe a thousand times. If he succeeds once, then he's in. These two things are diametrically opposite. We often say that the biggest job we have is to teach a newly hired employee how to fail intelligently. We have to train him to experiment over and over and to keep on trying and failing until he learns what will work. Failures are just practice shots. This is the end of the editor's comment. A 50-cent lesson in persistence. Shortly after Mr. Darby received his degree from the University of Hard Knocks, he witnessed something that proved to him that no does not necessarily mean no. One afternoon, he was helping his uncle grind wheat in an old-fashioned mill. The uncle operated a large farm on which a number of sharecropper farmers lived. Quietly, the door was opened, and a small child, the daughter of a tenant, walked in and took her place near the door. The uncle looked up, saw the child, and barked at her roughly, What do you want? Meekly, the child replied, My mom says to send her 50 cents. I'll not do it, the uncle retorted. Now you run on home. But she did not move. The uncle went ahead with his work, not noticing that she did not leave. 
When he looked up again and saw her still standing there, he said, I told you to go on home. Now go or I'll take a switch to you. But she did not budge. The uncle dropped a sack of grain he was about to pour into the mill hopper and started toward the child. Darby held his breath. He knew his uncle had a fierce temper. When the uncle reached the spot where the child was standing, she quickly stepped forward one step, looked up into his eyes, and screamed at the top of her voice, My mom's gotta have that 50 cents! The uncle stopped, looked at her for a minute, put his hand in his pocket, took out half a dollar, and gave it to her. The child took the money and slowly backed toward the door, never taking her eyes off the man whom she had just conquered. After she had gone, the uncle sat down on a box and looked out the window into space for more than ten minutes. He was pondering, with awe, over the whipping he had just taken. Mr. Darby, too, was doing some thinking. This was the first time in all his experience that he had seen a child deliberately master an adult. How did she do it? What happened to his uncle that caused him to lose his fierceness and become as docile as a lamb? What strange power did this child use that made her master of the situation? These questions flashed into Darby's mind, but he did not find the answer until years later when he told me the story. Strangely, the story of this unusual experience was told to me in the old mill on the very spot where the uncle took his whipping. As we stood there in that musty old mill, Mr. Darby repeated the story and finished by asking, what can you make of it? What strange power did that child use that so completely whipped my uncle? The answer to his question will be found in the principles described in this book. The answer is full and complete. It contains enough details and instructions for you to understand and apply the same force that the little child accidentally stumbled upon. Keep your mind alert and you will learn exactly what strange power came to the rescue of the child. You may catch a glimpse of the power in this chapter, or it may flash into your mind in some later chapter. If you stay alert to the possibility, somewhere you will find the idea that will quicken your receptive powers as, 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 as same irresistible power. It may come in the form of a single idea, or it may come as a complete plan or a purpose. It may even cause you to go back over your past experiences of failure or defeat, and in doing so, it may bring to the surface some lesson by which you can regain all that you lost through defeat. After I had explained to Mr. Darby the power unwittingly used by the little child, he mentally retraced his 30 years as a life insurance salesman. As he did so, it became clear to him that his success was due, in no small degree, to the lesson he had learned from the child. Mr. Darby pointed out, Every time a prospect tried to bow me out without buying, I saw that child standing there in the old mill, her big eyes glaring in defiance, and I said to myself, I've got to make this sale. The better portion of all sales I have made were made after people had said no. He also recalled his mistake in having stopped only three feet from gold. But, he said, that experience was a blessing in disguise. It taught me to keep on keeping on, no matter how hard the going may be. A lesson I needed to learn before I could succeed in anything. 
Mr. Darby's experiences were commonplace and simple enough, yet they held the answer to his destiny in life. In fact, to him the experiences were as important as life itself. And he was able to profit from these two important experiences because he analyzed them and found the lesson they taught. But what if you don't see the events of your life as being experiences of such profound significance? And what about the young person who doesn't yet have even minor failures to analyze? Where and how will they learn the art of converting defeats into the stepping stones to opportunity? That is exactly why this book was written, to answer those questions. To convey my answer, I have constructed 13 principles. These principles work individually or together as catalysts. The specific answer that you are looking for may already be in your own mind. Reading these principles may be the catalyst that causes your answer to suddenly come to you as an idea, a plan, or a purpose. One sound idea is all you need to achieve success. These 13 principles contain the best and most practical ways and means of creating ideas. Success Consciousness before I go any further in the description of these principles, you should know this. When riches begin to come, they come so quickly and in such great abundance that you will wonder where they've been hiding during all those lean years. This is an astounding statement, especially when you take into consideration the popular belief that riches come only to those who work hard and long. When you begin to think and grow rich, you will observe that riches begin with a state of mind, with definiteness of purpose, with little or no hard work. What you need to know now is how to acquire the state of mind that will attract riches. I spent 25 years researching the answer to that question because I too wanted to know how wealthy men become that way. What you will learn is that as soon as you master the principles of this philosophy, and begin to apply those principles, your financial status will begin to improve. Everything you touch will begin to transmute itself into an asset for your benefit. Impossible? Not at all. One of the main weaknesses the average person suffers is too much familiarity with the word impossible. We know all the rules that will not work. We know all the things that cannot be done. This book was written for those who seek the rules that have made others successful and are willing to stake everything on those rules. Success comes to those who become success conscious. Failure comes to those who allow themselves to become failure conscious. The object of this book is to help you learn the art of changing your mind from failure consciousness to success consciousness. Another weakness is the habit of measuring everything and everyone by your own impressions and beliefs. Some of you reading this will have trouble believing that you can think and grow rich because your thought habits have been steeped in poverty, misery, failure, and defeat. This kind of thinking reminds me of the story about the man who came from China to study at the University of Chicago. One day, President Harper met this young man on campus and stopped to chat with him for a few minutes. He asked what had impressed him as being the most noticeable characteristic of the American people. Why, the student exclaimed, the unusual shape of your eyes. 
It's all a matter of perspective and habit. The same is true of your belief in what a person can achieve. If you have formed the habit of seeing life only from your own perspective, you may make the mistake of believing that your limitations are in fact the proper measure of limitations. The Impossible Ford V8 Motor When Henry Ford decided to produce his famous V8 motor, he chose to build an engine with the entire eight cylinders cast in one block. Ford instructed his engineers to produce a design for the engine. The design was drawn up on paper, but the engineers agreed to a man that it was simply impossible to cast an eight-cylinder engine block in one piece. Ford said, produce it anyway. But they replied, it's impossible. Go ahead, Ford commanded, and stay on the job until you succeed, no matter how much time is required. So the engineers went ahead. Six months went by. Nothing happened. Another six months passed, and still nothing. The engineers tried every conceivable plan to carry out the order, but the thing seemed out of the question. Impossible. At the end of the year, Ford again checked with his engineers, and again they told him they had found no way to carry out his orders. Go right ahead, said Ford. I want it, and I'll have it. They went ahead. And then, as if by a stroke of magic, the secret was discovered. The Ford determination had won once more. Henry Ford was a success because he understood and applied the principles of success. One of these principles is desire, knowing clearly what you want. Remember this Ford story as you continue reading this book. Pick out the lines in which the secrets of his stupendous achievement have been described. If you do this, if you can put your finger on those particular principles that made Henry Ford rich, you may equal his achievements in almost any calling for which you are suited. Editor's Comments To those readers who may interpret Ford's actions as nothing more than obstinacy, the editors would point out that he was employing a technique that has become a common part of strategic planning in many industries including aerospace, computers, medicine, and the military. When launching large, complicated, long-term projects, the planners often know that at certain points along the way, they will need components that simply do not yet exist. The fact that at the beginning there is no way to get from A to B does not deter them. There are many parts of the project they can get started on now, and they just assume that by the time they get to the point where they will need a technology or a device, they will have solved the problem of making it, and they have been proven right time and again. Stated simply, the technique is to clearly know what you want to accomplish, have faith in your ability to do it, and persist until you have accomplished your goal. This is the end of the editor's comments. Why you are the master of your fate. When the famed English poet William Henley wrote the prophetic lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, he should have informed us that the reason we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls, is that we have the power to control our thoughts. He should have told us that it is because in some way our brains become magnetized with the dominating thoughts that we hold in our minds. 
and it is as though our magnetized minds attract to us the forces, the people, and the circumstances of life that are in sync with our dominating thoughts. He should have told us that before we can accumulate riches in great abundance, we must magnetize our minds with intense desire for riches. That we must become money conscious until the desire for money drives us to create definite plans for acquiring it. But being a poet, Henley contented himself by stating a great truth in poetic form, leaving those who followed him to interpret the philosophical meaning of his lines. Little by little, the truth has unfolded itself, until I have come to know with certainty that the principles described in this book hold the secret of mastery over our economic fate. Principles that can change your destiny. We are now ready to examine the first of these principles. And as we do, I ask you to maintain a spirit of open-mindedness. Remember as you read that these principles are not my invention, nor are they the invention of any one person. These principles have worked for literally millions of people. You too can put them to work for you and your own enduring benefit. You will find it easy, not hard to do. Some years ago, I delivered the commencement address at Salem College in Salem, West Virginia. I emphasized with so much intensity the need to have a burning desire that one of the members of the graduating class became completely convinced and made it a cornerstone of his own philosophy. That young man became a congressman and an important factor in President Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. He wrote me a letter in which he so clearly stated his opinion of the principle of desire outlined in the next chapter that I have chosen to publish his letter as an introduction to that chapter. It gives you an idea of the rewards to come. My dear Napoleon, my service as a member of Congress having given me an insight into the problems of men and women, I am writing to offer a suggestion which may become helpful to thousands of worthy people. In 1922, you delivered the commencement address at Salem College when I was a member of the graduating class. In that address, you planted in my mind an idea which has been responsible for the opportunity I now have to serve the people of my state and will be responsible in a very large measure for whatever success I may have in the future. I recall, as though it were yesterday, the marvelous description you gave of the method by which Henry Ford, with but little schooling, without a dollar, with no influential friends, rose to great heights. I made up my mind then, even before you had finished your speech, that I would make a place for myself, no matter how many difficulties I had to surmount. Thousands of young people will finish their schooling this year and within the next few years. Every one of them will be seeking just such a message of practical encouragement as the one I received from you. They will want to know where to turn, what to do to get started in life. You can tell them because you have helped to solve the problems of so many, many people. There are thousands of people in America today who would like to know how they can convert ideas into money. People who must start from scratch without finances and recoup their losses. If anyone can help them, you can. If you publish the book, I would like to own the first copy that comes from the press, personally autographed by you. With best wishes, believe me, cordially yours, Jennings Randolph. Since that time in 1922, 
I watched Jennings Randolph rise to become one of the nation's leading airline executives, a great inspirational speaker, and a United States Senator from West Virginia. Thirty-five years after I made that speech, it was my pleasure to return to Salem College in 1957 and deliver the baccalaureate sermon. At that time, I received an honorary Doctor of Literature degree from Salem College. It can achieve. Chapter 3 Desire The starting point of all achievement. The first step toward riches. When Edwin C. Barnes climbed down from the freight train in West Orange, New Jersey, he may have resembled a tramp, but his thoughts were those of a king. As he made his way from the railroad tracks to Thomas A. Edison's office, his mind was at work. He saw himself standing in Edison's presence. He heard himself asking Mr. Edison for an opportunity to carry out the one consuming obsession of his life, a burning desire to become the business associate of the great inventor. Barnes' desire was not a hope. It was not a wish. It was a pulsating desire which transcended everything else. It was definite. A few years later, Edwin C. Barnes again stood before Edison in the same office where he first met the inventor. This time, his desire had been translated into reality. He was in business with Edison. The dominating dream of his life had become a reality. Barnes succeeded because he chose a definite goal, placed all his energy, all his willpower, all his effort. He put everything he had into achieving that goal. Five years passed before the chance he had been seeking made its appearance. To everyone except himself, he appeared to be just another cog in the Edison business wheel. But in Edwin Barnes' own mind, he was the partner of Edison every minute from the very day that he first went to work there. It is a remarkable illustration of the power of a definite desire. Barnes won his goal because he wanted to be a business associate of Mr. Edison's more than he wanted anything else. He created a plan by which to attain that purpose, and he burned all bridges behind him. He stood by his desire until it became the dominating obsession of his life. And finally, a fact. When he went to West Orange, he did not say to himself, I will try to induce Edison to give me a job of some sort. He said, I will see Edison and put him on notice that I have come to go into business with him. He did not say, I will keep my eyes open for another opportunity in case I fail to get what I want in the Edison organization. He said, there is one thing in this world that I am determined to have and that is a business association with Thomas A. Edison. I will burn all bridges behind me and stake my entire future on my ability to get what I want. He left himself no possible way of retreat. He had to win or perish. That is all there is to the barn story of success. Allow yourself no retreat. A long while ago, 
A great warrior faced a situation in which he had to make a decision that ensured his success on the battlefield. He was about to send his armies against a powerful foe whose men outnumbered his. He loaded his soldiers into boats, sailed to the enemy's country, and unloaded the soldiers and equipment. Then he gave the order to burn the ships that had carried them. Addressing his men before the first battle, he said, You see the boats going up in smoke. That means we cannot leave these shores alive unless we win. We now have no choice. We win or we perish. They won. Every person who wins in any undertaking must be willing to burn his ships and cut all sources of retreat. That is the only way you can be sure of maintaining the state of mind known as a burning desire to win. It is essential to success. The morning after the Great Chicago Fire, a group of merchants stood on State Street, looking at the smoking remains of what had been their stores. They went into a conference to decide if they would try to rebuild, or if they would leave Chicago and start over in a more promising section of the country. They decided to leave, all except one. The merchant who decided to stay and rebuild pointed a finger at the remains of his store and said, Gentlemen, on that very spot, I will build the world's greatest store, no matter how many times it may burn down. That was in 1871. The store was built. It still stands there today. The Marshall Fields Department Store is a towering monument to the power of that state of mind known as a burning desire. The easy thing would have been for Marshall Field to do exactly what his fellow merchants did. When the going was hard and the future looked dismal, they pulled up and went where the going seemed easier. Mark well this difference between Marshall Field and the other merchants. It is that difference which distinguishes those who succeed from those who fail. Every human being old enough to understand the value of money wishes for it. But wishing will not bring riches. Desiring riches with a state of mind that becomes an obsession, then planning definite ways and means to acquire riches, and backing those plans with persistence, a persistence which does not recognize failure, that's what will bring riches. Editor's Comments In other of his writings, Napoleon Hill uses the term definiteness of purpose as being interchangeable with desire. The following explanation is adapted from the Napoleon Hill Foundation's book, Believe and Achieve. Desire or definiteness of purpose is more than goal setting. In simplest terms, your desire is your roadmap to achieving an overall career objective. Your goals represent specific steps along the way. Having a desire or definiteness of purpose for your life has a synergistic effect on your ability to achieve your goals. As you become better at what you do, you devote all of your resources toward reaching your objective. You become more alert to opportunities, and you reach decisions more quickly. Every action you take ultimately boils down to the question, will this goal help me reach my desire, my overall objective, or won't it? Your purpose will become your life. It will permeate your mind, both conscious and subconscious. This is the end of the editor's comments. Six ways to turn desire into gold. 
The method by which your desire for riches can be transmuted into its financial equivalent consists of six definite practical steps. 1. Fix in your mind the exact amount of money you desire. It is not sufficient merely to say, I want plenty of money. Be definite about the amount. There is a psychological reason for such definiteness explained in subsequent chapters. 2. Determine exactly what you intend to give in return for the money you desire. There is no such reality as something for nothing. 3. Establish a definite date when you intend to possess the money you desire. 4. Create a definite plan for carrying out your desire and begin at once, whether you are ready or not, to put this plan into action. 5. Now write it out. Write a clear, concise statement of the amount of money you intend to acquire. Name the time limit for its acquisition. State what you intend to give in return for the money and describe clearly the plan through which you intend to accumulate it. 6. Read your written statement aloud twice daily. Read it once just before retiring at night and read it once after arising in the morning. As you read, see and feel and believe yourself already in possession of the money. It is important that you follow the instructions in these six steps. It is especially important that you observe and follow the instructions in the sixth step. You may complain that it is impossible for you to see yourself in possession of money before you actually have it. Here is where a burning desire will come to your aid. If you truly desire money so keenly that your desire is an obsession, you will have no difficulty in convincing yourself that you will acquire it. The object is to want money and to become so determined to have it that you convince yourself you will have it. If you have not been schooled in the workings of the human mind, these instructions may appear impractical. It may help you to know that the information they convey was given to me by Andrew Carnegie, who made himself into one of the most successful men in American history. Carnegie began as an ordinary laborer in the steel mills, but managed, despite his humble beginning, to make these principles yield him a fortune of considerably more than $100 million. Editor's comment. In today's terms, the value of Carnegie's fortune would be at least $20 billion and probably a good deal more. End of editor's comment. It may be of further help to know that the six steps were carefully scrutinized by the famed inventor and successful businessman, Thomas A. Edison. He gave his stamp of approval, saying they are not only the steps essential for the accumulation of money, but also for the attainment of any goal. Editor's Comments In the time since Napoleon Hill wrote these words, advances in our understanding of both the physiology of the brain and the psychology of the mind have yielded a much greater understanding of human motivation. Even so, the methods used by modern motivational experts are essentially the same techniques advised by Hill. Research studies confirm that there is sound psychological basis for doing as Hill advises. Be very specific when setting goals. Perform the physical act of committing those goals to paper and repeat your stated goal aloud to yourself often. These techniques have gained wide acceptance among modern experts in the field. 
The psychological principle at work is similar to that which underlies auto-suggestion and self-hypnosis. Concepts that will be discussed in greater depth in Chapter 5, Auto-Suggestion, and in Chapter 13, The Subconscious Mind. Hill's instruction to see yourself as you will be when you have already achieved your objective is also a specific technique. Today it is commonly taught by motivational experts under the term creative visualization. In Chapter 4 on Faith and in Chapter 5 on Auto-Suggestion, Hill elaborates on his method. Before moving on, the editors would like to reinforce Hill's advice to follow his instructions to the letter. The editors know there is a tendency for the reader to assume that it is enough for them just to intellectually understand a concept. As you read Hill's six points, you probably found yourself thinking, sure, some people might need to write things down, but I'm not a kid, I get the idea. Or, okay, I understand that saying it out loud might help some less sophisticated people, but I already understand the point intellectually. If you feel that way, let us remind you that many of the most successful people whom you admire did not think they were too smart or too sophisticated to follow Hill's instructions. The editors would again point out that if Napoleon Hill believed the actual acts of writing and speaking your goals is important, and if psychologists and motivational experts agree, then you would be foolish not to follow this simple advice. Just do it. This is the end of the editor's comments. The steps call for no hard labor. They call for no sacrifice. To apply them does not call for a great amount of education. But the six steps do call for enough imagination to see and to understand that the accumulation of money cannot be left to chance or luck. You may as well know right here that you can never have riches in great quantity unless you can work yourself into a white heat of desire for money and actually believe you will possess it. The Power of Great Dreams If you are in this race for riches, you should be encouraged by the following truth. The world in which we live is demanding new ideas, new ways of doing things, new leaders, new inventions, and new methods, styles, versions, and variations of everything all the time. Behind all this demand for new and better things, there is one quality that you must possess to win, and that is definiteness of purpose, the knowledge of what you want, and a burning desire to possess it. If you truly desire riches, remember that the real leaders of the world have always been people who harnessed and put into practical use the intangible, unseen forces of opportunity. Leaders are the people who convert those opportunities into cities, skyscrapers, factories, transportation, entertainment, and every form of convenience that makes things easier, faster, better, or just make life more pleasant. In planning to acquire your share of the riches, don't let anyone put you down for being a dreamer. To win the big stakes in this changing world, you must catch the spirit of the great pioneers, whose dreams have given to civilization all that it has of value. It is that spirit which serves as the lifeblood of our own country. Your opportunity 
and mine to develop and market our talents. A burning desire to be and to do is the starting point from which the dreamer must take off. Dreams are not born of indifference, laziness, or lack of ambition. If the thing you wish to do is right and you believe in it, go ahead and do it. Never mind what they say if you meet with temporary defeat. They do not know that every failure brings with it the seed of an equivalent success. Marconi dreamed of a system for sending sound from one place to another without the use of wires. It may interest you to know that Marconi's friends had him taken into custody and examined in a psychiatric hospital when he announced he had discovered a principle by which he could send messages through the air. Evidence that he did not dream in vain may be found in every radio and television set, cellular phone, communication satellite, and every other wireless device in the world. Fortunately, the dreamers of today fare better. Today, your world is filled with an abundance of opportunity that the dreamers of the past never knew. If you doubt this is true, if you are feeling crushed because of a recent failure, you are about to learn how your failure can be your most valuable asset. Almost everyone who succeeds in life gets off to a bad start and passes through many heartbreaking struggles before they arrive. The turning point in the lives of those who succeed usually comes at the moment of some crisis through which they are introduced to their other selves. Editor's Comments Napoleon Hill's concept of the other self is mentioned elsewhere in Think and Grow Rich, but he does not comment on it extensively. The following elaboration is taken from his later writings. You've been thinking about your losses to the exclusion of everything else. The more you concentrate on them, the more you attract other losses. Stop thinking about them and make up your mind that you are going to benefit from your experience. Whatever personal obstacles you face, you must start getting to know that side of your personality that knows no obstacles that recognizes no defeats. Cultivate a friendship with the other you, so no matter what you're doing, you are allied with someone who shares your goals. All the philosophy and advice about persuading others will be much more useful to you if you practice it yourself. This is the end of the editor's comment. Sidney Porter discovered the genius that slept within his brain only after he had met with great misfortune. He was found guilty of embezzlement and confined to a prison cell in Columbus, Ohio. And it was there that he became acquainted with his other self. He began to write short stories. Then, while locked in his cell, he began to sell those stories to magazines under the pen name O. Henry. Through the use of his imagination, he discovered himself to be a great author instead of a miserable criminal and outcast. By the time he was released from prison, O. Henry was the most popular short story writer in the country. Editor's Comments More recently, in another prison, another kind of writer met his other self, and country music gained one of its most talented songwriters and biggest stars. As a kid, Merle Haggard's family home was a converted boxcar in Bakersfield, California. After his father died when Merle was nine, more often than not, home for young Merle was a series of juvenile detention centers. 
At 16, he quit school. And for the next four years, the only mark Merle Haggard made in the world was a rap sheet for stolen cars, burglaries, and bogus checks. By the age of 20, he was serving time in San Quentin and gaining a reputation as a hard case con. Then he met his other self. Inspired by a concert Johnny Cash played for the inmates, plus conversations with men on death row and the time he spent in solitary confinement, Haggard learned that he had another self. And that self had something to say through his music. When he got out of solitary, Haggard asked for the hardest job the prison had to offer. He enrolled in night school courses at the prison, straightened himself out, and won his parole after two and a half years. He went back to Bakersfield and dug ditches during the day so he could polish his songwriting and performing at night. Within three years, he had a recording contract. Within five years, he had his first top ten hit and has since gone on to become one of the most influential voices in modern country music. This is the end of the editor's comments. Thomas Edison dreamed of a lamp that could be operated by electricity, and he began where he stood to put his dream into action. He failed more than 10,000 times. Despite his failures, he stood by that dream until finally he was driven to the discovery of the genius that slept within his brain. Editor's Comments Dean Kamen got to know his other self very early in life. While he was a teenager, Kamen started his own company, building and selling control systems for automated sound and light shows. He was still in high school when he got the contract to automate the Times Square New Year's Eve ball. Though he went on to attend university, he never bothered to graduate because he was too busy working on something he called auto syringe the first wearable infusion pump for administering drug therapies. His invention was hailed as a medical landmark, as were many of his other breakthroughs, which include a revolutionary kidney dialysis machine, an insulin pump for diabetics, an improved stent used for heart patients, and more than 150 other devices he has patented. One day, seeing the difficulty a man in a wheelchair was having getting up a curb, Kamen set his mind to creating a device that would liberate people confined to wheelchairs. The result is the iBot, a revolutionary wheel device that uses computers and a system of stabilizing gyroscopes that imitate the working of the human body. It not only goes over curbs, but it will even go up and down stairs, travel over almost any kind of rough ground, and will allow the user to raise themselves eye to eye with a standing person and it does it all without the user having to get out of the device or needing anyone's assistance. In 2001, Kamen hit the front pages when he introduced the Segway, a one-person people mover based on his iBot technology. It's a two-wheel scooter-like device that zips and zooms forward, backward, left, right, and comes to a stop without the rider doing anything more than barely shifting his or her body. It is so sensitive that it is almost as though it obeys the user's thoughts. The Segway may be a world-changing invention, with possible applications for work and travel that stagger the imagination. As this is being written, the Segway is already being used to navigate large warehouses and is being tested by police departments and postal employees. 
While traffic cops and City Hall wrangle over whether the Segway belongs on the sidewalk or the road, Dean Kamen is dreaming a new dream. This time, the dream is an invention that may literally bring light to some of the darkest corners of the earth. Cayman has developed a non-polluting electric generator that can use almost anything as fuel. But here's the extraordinary part. He has created a revolutionary closed system so that the engine's heat is used to purify 10 gallons of drinkable water every hour. This amazing invention could bring safe drinking water to parts of the world where contaminated water kills millions. And at the same time, it will provide a source of cheap, reliable electric power. Dean Kamen is not some academic hidden in a lab somewhere. Kamen is an inventor. But like Thomas Edison, he is also an entrepreneur and businessman, creating and marketing devices that are changing the public perception of what an inventor is. This is the end of the editor's comments. Henry Ford, poor and uneducated, dreamed of a horseless carriage. He went to work with what tools he possessed without waiting for opportunity to favor him, and now evidence of his dream belts the entire earth. He put more wheels into operation than any man who ever lived because he was not afraid to back his dreams. Editor's Comments Stephen Jobs and Steve Wozniak, two university dropouts, dreamed of making and selling computers that the average person could use. Like Ford, working with the tools they possessed, they built the first Apple computer in the Jobs family garage. And like Ford, they weren't afraid to back their dreams. After showing their prototype to a local retailer, they got an order for 25 machines. Jobs sold his Volkswagen, and Woz sold his expensive Hewlett-Packard scientific calculator to raise $1,300 to start their new company. They took the money, convinced the local electronic suppliers to grant them a line of credit, and started production of the Apple One. They revolutionized the computer hardware and software industry. Released in 1976 and priced at $666, the Apple One earned them $774,000. Two years later, they introduced the Apple II, which in the next three years earned $140 million. In 1980, Apple went public, and after the first day of trading, the company had a market value of $1.2 billion. Wozniak left the company in 1981, but Jobs pushed through the development of the Macintosh in 1984. In 1985, Jobs left too, but in 1998 he came back to Apple to revitalize the floundering company with the creation of the iMac computers, the animation company Pixar, the iPod, and iTunes. In presenting stories of contemporary successes, the editors have followed Hill's style of using real people to illustrate the principles of success. But Napoleon Hill was granted a rare privilege. Unlike anyone before or after, he had the opportunity to personally meet the most powerful and successful people and learn firsthand the dreams that inspired them, the obstacles that confronted them, and how they found the courage within themselves to overcome their failures. Hill met many of the inventors and the empire builders who laid the foundations of 20th century American industry while they were still news, not history. 
Then for more than 25 years, he studied the habits and learned the secrets of the next generations who built on the foundations, forged new industries, devised new systems, and dreamed new dreams. It was only because Hill was given such unprecedented access over such a long period that he was able to compare, contrast, analyze, and then formulate a philosophy of achievement based on the real stories of real people who had used these techniques to create their success. Think and Grow Rich revolutionized self-help writing and to this day is the standard against which all motivational literature is measured. Its success also helped create the market for the thousands of business biographies that tell in detail how the dreams were born, plans were made, frustrations were faced, and triumphs achieved in every sector of modern business. And because this wealth of information is now available with little more than the click of a mouse, you can read, hear, or watch today's greatest entrepreneurs and most successful CEOs confirming in their own words the basic truth behind every one of the principles Napoleon Hill explains in this book. The products or services they sell may be different, but the story of their success is the same. Dreams, followed by failures, followed by lessons learned, then success. For every Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, or O. Henry that Napoleon Hill cites to make a point, today there is a Steve Jobs, Dean Kamen, or Merle Haggard proving that Hill's points are still valid. This is the end of the editor's comments. There is a difference between wishing for a thing and being ready to receive it. No one is ready for a thing until they believe they can acquire it. The state of mind must be belief, not mere hope or wish. Open-mindedness is essential for belief. Closed minds do not inspire faith, courage, and belief. Remember, no more effort is required to aim high in life, to demand abundance and prosperity, than is required to accept misery and poverty. A great poet has correctly stated this universal truth through these lines. I bargained with life for a penny, and life would pay no more. However, I begged at evening when I counted my scanty store. For life is a just employer. He gives you what you ask. But once you have set the wages, why, you must bear the task. I worked for a menial's hire, only to learn dismayed that any wage I had asked of life, life would have willingly paid. Desire outwits Mother Nature. As a fitting climax to this chapter, I wish to introduce one of the most unusual persons I have ever known. I first saw him a few minutes after he was born. He came into the world without any physical sign of ears. When pressed for an opinion, the doctor concluded that the child might be deaf and mute for life. I challenged that doctor's opinion. I had the right to do so. I was the child's father. I, too, reached a decision. But I expressed my opinion silently, in the secrecy of my own heart. In my own mind, I knew that my son would hear and speak. How? I was sure there must be a way, and I knew I would find it. I thought of the words of the immortal Emerson, 
The whole course of things goes to teach us faith. We need only obey. There is guidance for each of us, and by lowly listening, we shall hear the right word. The right word? Desire. More than anything else, I desired that my son should not be deaf and unable to speak. From that desire, I never receded, not for a second. What could I do about it? Somehow, I would find a way to transplant into that child's mind my own burning desire for ways and means of conveying sound to his brain without the aid of ears. As soon as the child was old enough to cooperate, I would fill his mind so completely with a burning desire to hear that nature would, by methods of her own, translate it into physical reality. All this thinking took place in my own mind, but I spoke of it to no one. Every day I renewed the pledge I had made to myself that my son should not be deaf. As he grew older and began to take notice of things around him, we observed that he had a slight degree of hearing. When he reached the age when children usually begin talking, he made no attempt to speak, but we could tell by his actions that he could hear certain sounds slightly. That was all I needed to know. I was convinced that if he could hear, even slightly, he might develop still greater hearing capacity. Then something happened that gave me hope. It came from an entirely unexpected source. We bought a phonograph. When the child heard the music for the first time, he went into ecstasies. He promptly appropriated the machine. On one occasion, he played a record over and over for almost two hours, standing in front of the phonograph with his teeth clamped on the edge of the case. The significance of this did not become clear to us until years afterward. At the time, we had never heard of the principle of bone conduction of sound. Shortly after he appropriated the phonograph, I discovered that he could hear me quite clearly when I spoke with my lips touching his mastoid bone at the base of the skull. Having determined that he could hear the sound of my voice plainly, I began immediately to transfer to his mind the desire to hear and speak. When I discovered that my son enjoyed bedtime stories, I went to work creating stories designed to develop in him self-reliance, imagination, and a strong desire to hear. There was one storyline in particular that I emphasized over and over. Every time I told it, I gave it some new and dramatic coloring. These stories were designed to plant in his mind the thought that his affliction was not a liability, but an asset of great value. As a result of my studies and personal experience, I firmly believe that every adversity brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage. However, despite my beliefs, I must confess that I did not have the slightest idea how this disability could ever become an asset. He won a new world with six cents. As I analyze the experience in retrospect, I can see now that my son's faith in me had much to do with the astounding results. He did not question anything I told him. I sold him on the idea that he had a distinct advantage over his older brother and that this advantage would reflect itself in many ways. For example, the teachers in school would observe that he had no ears, 
and because of this they would show him special attention and treat him with extraordinary kindness and they always did I also sold him on the idea that when he became old enough to sell newspapers his older brother had already become a newspaper merchant he would have a big advantage over his brother my reasoning was that people would pay him extra money for his wares because they could see that he was a bright industrious boy despite the fact that he had no ears when he was about seven he showed the first evidence that my method of stimulating his mind was bearing fruit for several months he begged for the privilege of selling newspapers but his mother would not give the project her consent finally he took matters in his own hands one afternoon when he was left at home with the staff he climbed through the kitchen window shinnied to the ground and set out on his own he borrowed six cents in capital from the neighborhood shoemaker and invested it in papers which he sold out he took his earnings reinvested in more newspapers and kept repeating until late in the evening after balancing his accounts and paying back the six cents he had borrowed from his banker he had a net profit of 42 cents when we got home that night we found him in bed asleep with the money tightly clenched in his hand his mother opened his hand removed the coins and cried of all things to me it seemed she was crying over her son's first victory my reaction was the reverse I laughed for I knew that my endeavor to plant in my son's mind an attitude of faith in himself had been successful his mother saw in his first business venture a little deaf boy who had gone out in the streets and risked his life to earn money I saw a brave ambitious self-reliant little businessman whose stock in himself had been increased a hundred percent he had gone into business on his own initiative and had won I was not only pleased I was impressed he had clearly demonstrated the first signs of a resourcefulness that would go with him all through life the little deaf boy went through grade school high school and college without being able to hear his teachers except when they shouted loudly at close range he did not go to a school for the deaf and we did not use sign language we were determined that he should live like any other boy who could hear and speak we stood by that decision although it cost us many heated debates with school officials while he was in high school he tried an electronic hearing aid but it was of no value to him during his last week in college something happened that marked the most important turning point of his life through what seemed to be mere chance he came into possession of another electronic hearing device which was sent to him on trial he was slow about testing it due to his disappointment with a similar device finally he picked it up carelessly placed it on his head and hooked up the battery suddenly as if by magic his lifelong desire for normal hearing became a reality for the first time in his life he heard practically as well as any person with normal hearing overjoyed because of the changed world that had been brought to him he rushed to the telephone called his mother and heard her voice perfectly the next day for the first time in his life he plainly heard the voices of his professors in class for the first time in his life he could converse freely with other people without them having to speak loudly truly he had come into possession of a changed world. 
his desire was finally paying dividends. But the victory was not yet complete. He still had to find a definite and practical way to convert his disability into an equivalent asset. Thought that works miracles. Intoxicated with the joy of his newly discovered world of sound, he wrote a letter to the manufacturer of the hearing aid, enthusiastically describing his experience. Something in his letter prompted the company to invite him to New York. He was escorted through the factory, and while talking with the chief engineer, telling him about his changed world, a hunch, an idea, or an inspiration, call it what you wish, flashed into his mind. It was this impulse of thought that converted his disability into an asset, an asset destined to pay dividends in both money and happiness to thousands for all time to come. The sum and substance of that impulse was this. It occurred to him that he might be of help to the millions of people who go through life without the benefit of hearing devices if he could find a way to tell them the story of his changed world. For an entire month, he carried out intensive research, during which he analyzed the entire marketing system of the manufacturer of the hearing device. Then he created a plan for reaching out to other hearing impaired people all over the world to share with them his newly discovered changed world. When this was done, he put in writing a two-year plan based upon his findings. When he presented the plan to the company, he was instantly given a position for the purpose of carrying out his ambition. Little did he dream when he went to work that he was destined to bring hope and practical relief to thousands of people who, without his help, would have been limited forever by deafness. There's no doubt in my mind that Blair would have been deaf and unable to speak all his life if his mother and I had not managed to shape his mind as we did. When I planted in his mind the desire to hear and talk and live as other people, there went with that impulse some strange influence that caused nature to become bridge builder and span the gulf of silence between his brain and the outer world. Truly, a burning desire has devious ways of transmuting itself into its physical equivalent. Blair desired normal hearing. Now he has it. He was born with a condition that in those days might easily have sent a person with a less defined desire to the street with a bundle of pencils and a tin cup. The little white lie I planted in his mind when he was a child by leading him to believe his impaired hearing would become a great asset has justified itself. I am convinced it is a fact that there is nothing right or wrong that belief plus burning desire cannot make real. These qualities are free to everyone. Editor's Comments As Napoleon Hill was finishing this chapter on desire, it was reported that the famed opera singer Madame Schumann-Hank had died. A passage in her obituary struck Hill as being so appropriate to the subject of this chapter that he was moved to comment as follows. End of Editor's Comments one short paragraph in the newspaper story about the famed opera singer Madame Schumann-Heinck gives the clue to this unusual woman's stupendous success. I quote the paragraph because the clue it contains is none other than desire. Early in her career, Madame Schumann-Heinck visited the director of the Vienna Court Opera to have him test her voice. But he did not test it. 
After taking one look at the awkward and poorly dressed girl, he exclaimed, none too gently, with such a face and with no personality at all, how can you ever expect to succeed in opera? My good child, give up the idea. Buy a sewing machine and go to work. You can never be a singer. Never is a long time. The director of the Vienna Court Opera may have known much about the technique of singing, but he knew little about the power of desire when it assumed the proportion of an obsession. If he had known more of that power, he would not have made the mistake of condemning genius without giving it an opportunity. Editor's Comments Although few readers of this edition will be familiar with Madame schumann Heinck, every reader knows a half dozen similar stories. It is true for every generation and every kind of music. At some time, even the biggest stars were failures. At some time, someone told them they weren't good enough. But every one of those times that they failed, their desire was bigger than their failure. That is why you know their stories. And it's also why you've never heard about the thousands of other performers who were also told they weren't good enough. The ones you've never heard of are the ones whose desire wasn't big enough. They are the ones who believed that failure was defeat. This is the end of the editor's comment. Several years ago, one of my business associates became ill. He became worse as time went on, and finally was taken to the hospital for an operation. The doctor warned me that there was little, if any, chance of my ever seeing him alive again. But that was the doctor's opinion. It was not the opinion of the patient. Just before he was wheeled away, he whispered to me, Do not be disturbed, chief. I will be out of here in a few days. The attending nurse looked at me with pity. But the patient did come through safely. After it was all over, his physician said, Nothing but his own desire to live saved him. He never would have pulled through if he had not refused to accept the possibility of death. Editor's Comments By the 1980s, the phenomenon that Napoleon Hill wrote about in the preceding paragraph was embraced by a growing segment of the population. Among the adherents were numerous medical professionals who incorporated the concept under the term the body-mind connection. And by the turn of the 21st century, the belief that the mind can manifest physical changes in the body had become a part of mainstream medical practice. In Chapter 5, Autosuggestion, you will find further comment on the medical aspects of having a burning desire. This is the end of the editor's comment. I believe in the power of desire backed by faith in yourself because I have seen this power lift people from lowly beginnings to places of power and wealth. I have seen it rob the grave of its victims. I have seen it serve as the medium by which people staged a comeback after having been defeated in a hundred different ways. And I have seen it provide my own son with a normal, happy, successful life, despite nature's having sent him into the world without ears. How can you harness and use the power of desire? The first part of the answer is in the technique at the beginning of this chapter. You will learn more about it in the next and subsequent chapters of this book. Through some strange and powerful principle, nature wraps up in the impulse of strong desire that something that recognizes no such word as impossible and accepts no such reality as failure.
are no limitations to the mind except those we acknowledge. There are no limitations to the mind except those we acknowledge. There are no limitations to the mind except those we acknowledge. There are no limitations to the mind except those we acknowledge. Chapter four. Chapter four. Chapter four. Chapter four. Chapter four. Chapter four. was chapters one, two, and three of Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, and the editors. Yeah. J4 says, I'm going to buy some merch to remember this episode. I think that's a good idea. That's a wonderful idea. I'm proud of you. Having such a great idea. Yo, how was that for you, baby? How was that for you? Yo, I was having little, I was having little emotional moments there when he was talking about his son and all that. Oh my goodness. Yo. Bruh. Yo, yo, yo. Yo, emotional times. Emotional times at the Club of Meaning. At the Lo-Fi Library. Stefan, huh? We'll be listening to this again for sure. God bless you. Martin Ponsa 21 says, coming full circle, Akira 360. Whoa! 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 That's crazy, actually. Oh, my goodness. Because uh, you do know, right, uh, that when I uh, invented Meaning Wave, one of the contributing factors was I was reading Scott Adams's how to fail at everything and still win big which is heavily influenced by this yo neo-stoicism you've done it once again my friend J4 says there are no limitations Adam Rudmack says nothing just trying to think and grow rich uh exactly Angie Kamaromi says same. Neo Stoicism says getting wealthy Maine. Getting wealthy in Maine is a good uh, rap name. That's a good rap name. Getting wealthy Maine. That's a good rap name. Yo, someone take that. Morgan, Morgan, Morgan says being reminded of our secrets tend to grow when kept 
whether it be a trauma you don't share, a secret mantra in mantra-based meditative practice sieves. Right. Spicy Shoe Guy says that got right in the feels. Robert Easley says excellent. Uh, Monica Sizzo says puppet Akira. God bless. Maria Lizak says brilliant. Mikey Mike says, see, there you go. Morgan Mindfulness says, I cried myself when he talked about his son's desires to bring hearing. So, well, this is a good day. Yo, yo, that was one of those moments where I was like, thank goodness for the webcam. You would have seen my big wet eyes. I would have ruined my manly image, you know. I would have ruined my, my heavily vascular image. <laughs> what do you mean I look like a BG right now? That's hilarious. Um, well, <laughs> Spicy Shugay says, showed up late. I'm very excited for the rest on the repeat. Rest on the repeat. Yo, I think we might have to continue with this one. What do you reckon? Do you want to hear more of this? Do you want to hear more of this? Uh, Mason says, joy in what you're doing creates chemicals that provide more of the chemicals that allow for effort. Mind-body connection. John McGarvey says, howdy folks. Popped in to smash the like watching JBP on Theo. Is it new JBP on Theo? Bloody hell, there's so much JBP to watch. Oh my goodness. Or is it the old one? Has he done a new one? Really, sir, he succeeded because he didn't know he couldn't. That's why um, I, got, I was really good at club DJing. Was well, am. Didn't occur to me. People used to, other DJs used to go to me like, "Man, Kira, you go so hard. You know how? Why you go so hard? Like, da, da, da. and I'd be like, it never occurred to me that you couldn't. It never occurred to me to like not do everything in my power to make sure everybody had the best time possible. It didn't occur to me that you could just sort of stand there and play the same songs on loop and just get drunk. Like, it never occurred to me that was a possibility. As far as I was aware, and aware, it wasn't even, it was like a determined, it was like the only possible thing to do in the situation of being in a club DJing was make sure everybody had a transcendent experience. And if they did not, I had just fucked up everything and should go like, you know, throw myself off a, a ravine or something like there was no option there was no no way i was gonna like leave that place and people not have a transcendent experience ever even on like i used to sometimes dj uh i had this weird residency i had a friend he was djing he, in it he 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 knew that i i would killed it you know and then he was like i'll get akira to come in and, and like share the night with me you know so i would come in and there'd be like 20 people in the club and that night it was middle of a middle of a week sleepy night you know and I would get it so those 20 people were gathered right in the middle of the dance floor and packed in so tight. And I'd get them to turn the lights down and all this type of shit. So it felt like the place was, and I'd make sure, and I'd just kill it. So those people felt like it was the most lit night on earth. And then other people would come in and they'd see those people and they'd join in. And it would become a lit night. Like, and I, I would do that every week, you know? And it was just like purely because it was like no option to not do anything else. Why, how, it was just no option. And uh, that no option thing is real. That is real. Uh, Spicy Shoe Guy says, please, more would be wonderful. Uh, John McGarvey says, yep, new. Ill Inc. says, yes, I want to hear more. Mikey Mike says, shout out to everyone on the replay. Ill Inc. says, I've been drawing cheeseburgers this whole time. Ah, that's epic. Andrew says, absolutely more of this. Sheila says, yes, please, more. Morgan Mindfulness says, absolutely down to hear more of this. Man's the ultimate study group. Luther Vaughn, yeah, man, we like you. You seem super, super legit. Stay Dugan says, epic. Shecky Pavel says, someone sucks. Who, is, who sucks? Who sucks? John, everybody sucks. Sometimes, that's something. John McGarvey says, hence the dawn. Uh, Lauren Shepard says, blessings to the Green fan. Blessings to you. Doe Deckerman says, more. You are, the uh, You Are Friendly podcast says, yes, more. I just started gardening. 
Well, it seems like it's decided. And it makes complete sense because there's an album called How to Get Rich Volume 2 in the near future. And uh, it makes sense to, uh, you know, to go through this, uh, this famous foundational work. Does it not? Yes, it does. All right, boom, boom, boom. Well, that being said, uh, amazing. Thank you for being here. Thank you to those that supported. Uh, Nate, Miranda, Alec, and Nate again, and Ruby, Paul, Emily, and Grace via, via, via um, Thingy Book um, with Nate. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for support. Thank you, Tricky DJ, uh, who cheered over on uh, Twitch in a, in a very uh, cheerful fashion. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone who, uh, who comes here, you know, and joins us in this endeavor to, uh, you know, regulate the vibes and spread meaning wherever we can. Boom, boom, boom! Yes, that was delightful. That was delightful. I enjoyed that very much. It's also very nice working with uh, audio that's been well recorded. <laughs> a voice that has been recorded well. I am so used to working with voices that have been recorded poorly. Um, as they saw in, from disparate sources. <laughs> so, so it's a real treat when you've got a nicely uh, recorded, uh, EQ'd and compressed vocal with which to weave some sonics, you know. Very, very nice. Tricky DJ says, Akira the Don Cheers, bro. Shout out to you, you bad man. Epic DJs at Twitch make some noise. Yo, we're going to be back tomorrow morning with a club of meaning set of some kind that is now going to be dictated by the spin of a wheel, you know. We're going to put our... We're going to put ourselves in the hands of fate right now, you know what I mean? We're going to put ourselves in, in the hands of this, this device. Look at it go, look at it go. It's spinning. It's a spinning wheel. And uh, what is it going to say? R&B! Well, that's nice. Wonderful. We're playing R&B tomorrow morning. Hurrah! <sighs> that's going to be a nice, uh, nice... Uh vibe to start the day tomorrow morning at the Club of Meaning by Jove. Come on! Perfect. Perfect. Hey, well, if that ain't nice, I don't know what is. If that ain't nice, I don't know what is. said we're getting out of here we'll see you in the morning uh, thank you for being here hey thank you Cozy Khans uh, for the five dollar super chat there that's very very uh, civilized and lovely of you says ayo bruv we always in the hands of fate that's some real shit and uh, we always have the capacity to decide what we're going to do uh, with those cards that get lobbed in our direction yeah. and uh, you know we endeavor to uh, you know Keep going super, super hard, building that eternal soul, one uh, act of kindness at a time, and uh, you know, fulfill our destiny of reaching 100% maximum us in this lifetime by Joe. Go forth and be mighty, brothers and sisters. Thank you for being here. Excuse me? You gotta get after it. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Uh, Choco, uh, what have you got to say on this matter? Get after it. Thank you very much. Uh, how about you, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson? Do you know who Akira the Dawn is? I mean, that's a good question. Do you know who Akira the Dawn is? Of course, he's amazing. There you go. All right, all right. All right, thank you for joining us here at the Lo-Fi Library. 
uh, which I think is a lovely title, and I came up with that this afternoon, Lo-Fi Library. We're in the Lo-Fi Library by Jove. Welcome to the Lo-Fi Library. And uh, we'll see you again here next week in the Lo-Fi Library, uh, where we'll be uh, continuing to, uh, to uh, wave this book, baby. Wave this book, you know? Shouts out to this book. It's dope. Uh, thank you for being here. We're going to go, if you're on Twitch right now, uh, we're going to go raid somebody. If you're on YouTube, uh, you could come join us on Twitch and do a raid if you like. It's always a joyful endeavor. Uh, we go jump in another club, you know, and, and we found some wonderful, wonderful DJs uh, doing that. And it never ceases to uh, amaze me and fill me with joy and wonder. Uh, the wonderful DJs we find out there in the world, you know. All right, all right, let's get after it. Uh, happy birthday, Ill Inc. Uh, I hope you drew some wonderful hamburgers. Uh, blessings to all of the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. That's right, Sheila. God bless you, members. Time, Sheila. Robert, Stay Dugan, Cindy, The Real Greg, all of y'all. Thank you all for being here. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye, bye, five. Ooh. <laughs>